Well, we're starting a new marriage series today, and I'm so excited to get this thing going. It's great to see so many of you together. If you're sitting with your husband or you're sitting with your wife, reach out and hold each other's hand right now. Come on, that's something we got to do, right? We're going to do this. We're going to practice what we're talking about here. We're starting a new series called Happily Ever After. It's okay to hold hands in, in church. That's all right. Um, yesterday, I was uh, with my girls, and, and they brought a book to me to read. And they handed me this book, and it's Cinderella. This isn't the Disney version, but I was reading through. And if you guys know this well-loved tale of a, of a girl who's just trying to, to make her way through life, and she's being abused by her stepmother and sisters and having to work really hard, she gets to the ball, right? She's looking for love, and lo and behold, she falls in love with the prince. Prince Charming, right? The prince is there, and, and they dance together, and they, and they fall in love, and all of a sudden, the time is ticking away, and what happens? It strikes midnight, 12 o'clock, the talk, clock times, chimes. She knows she's about to turn, well, she's not going to turn into a pumpkin, but she's going to come back into her, her regular clothes, and so she runs out, she drops her slipper. The prince thinks forever he's lost the love of his life, but he finds the slipper, and you know the story. He goes searching high and low. It looks like they're never going to come together. But here's what happens. They find each other. The slipper fits. And then as the stories end and, ha- and fairy tales end, it ends like this. It says, when Cinderella arrived at the ball, that's the wrong page. It doesn't end there. It right, ends on this page. Cinderella and the prince were soon married. And they lived happily ever after. Happily ever after. And then we come to this next page, and it says, the end. That's it. Happily ever after, the end end right and it's a phrase that we've bought into this happily ever after that that if we just if we can just find love and we put all our energy into finding love and it's the stuff of fairy tales the stuff of movies the stuff of tv if we can just come through the adversity and we can find true love and we get engaged and we get married then then we can live happily ever after and we can ride off into the sunset the end dun 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 but now those of us who've been married a month, a year, five years, ten years, welcome to the happily ever after. This is it. This is the stuff that, that, that books leave out, that stories leave out, and we wonder what happened. I think we should all have a bumper sticker on our car, those of us who are married, and that says, life happens. Marriage happens, right? Marriage happens. And the things that come up all of a sudden aren't just happily ever after. There's a reason why when we are, at, at, uh, when we are at saying our wedding vows, we say things like, for better or worse, for richer or in sickness and in? Now, it would be a lot easier if it was better, richer, and health, right? I mean, that's happily ever after. We don't have to worry about that, but it's for worse. There are times where it's poorer. There are times where there's sickness. There are monthly things called a mortgage that are due, not other, and there are other monthly things we have to deal with, too, um, in marriage. That wasn't in my notes. <laughs> We, you know, <laughs> wow. We have to deal with things like sickness. We have to deal with things like, you know, like aging and sagging. We have to deal with things that we don't think about on the front end. Yeah, I mean, I'm just painting the reality of the picture of marriage. It doesn't just stop at happily ever after. You know, there are times when their days are busy and, and we come back home and the husband kind of raises his eyebrows a little bit and there's things that get in the way called headaches that happen. I mean, this is the reality of marriage, okay? Things, things that go on and it's not always like we imagine dishes and dirty laundry. Well, what I want to talk about in this series is how do we take this question mark, happily ever after, 
question mark? Is it really a question mark? Can we turn it into an exclamation point? Can we really look to see what God's word have to say to say, how can we have the kind of marriages where we really look at the ever after and not just get stuck on the first part of finding love, but how do we really stay in love and grow in love? And today we're going to talk about how do we become one in marriage. And now if you're not married, and you may be thinking, okay, well, I'll come back in May. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. Because I think many of us, if we're single, we're maybe in, at some time in our life hoping to find love and get married. And maybe we're divorced or single and we hope to find love in another relationship. And so these things are vitally important. Teenagers, if you're thinking one day about being married, this is vitally important. And you should be looking for each other out here right now. No. Um, what we learn here is so important because it lays the foundation and so much energy is spent. Couples spend so much time. They, I think couples spend more time before getting married. They spend more time picking out a wedding dress and a, and a wedding invitation than they do investing in their marriage and what it's going to take to prepare for marriage. We care more about the cake than what we do, what it's going to be like when we live together the rest of our lives and growing as a, in a relationship. And so what you learn now is vitally important. And if you don't ever plan to get married, don't want to get married, God has called you to a life of singleness and you are happy as can be, you're still going to learn great truths and you can help some of those couples with what you're learning that are, that are, that are struggling right now because there's a lot of not have happily ever afters. And so we're going to tackle that in these next several weeks. Heavenly Father, it is uh, great to be together here in this place. I uh, just thank you for the spirit among your people today. And uh, especially now, I ask you just to prepare our hearts uh, to hear what you have to say, God, that uh, as we reflect on our marriages, as we reflect on relationships, as we reflect on our individual lives, God, that, that your truth would become very real to us and uh, that what happens in this day and in these weeks, God, would just strengthen the marriages around us and our lives. Do you agree? And you submit to this prayer. Say amen. Amen. All right. Well, God is ready to speak and share some things. So the question today is, how do two become one? How do two become one? We've got this scripture in Ephesians, and I want you to turn with me to Ephesians, and you're thinking, wasn't that the last series it was? But I told you, we're going to continue. Ephesians chapter 5. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, page 910, and uh, we're going to actually begin with verse 31. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. And here's what it says, and it also, we have it written up there on that, on that board. It says this. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So how do two become one? That's what we're going to look at today. Now, it's easy, right? You basically, you know, they, they, they get married. And once they get married, they say, I do, and then they consummate the marriage, and the two are one. End of story, right? That's the magic, that's the mystery, two become one, and so couples on their wedding day, they walk away and say, we are now one because we said I do, and we are one, and we're going to walk forward from here together. But I think if it was that easy, I don't think Paul would say it's a great mystery. This is a great mystery how these things happen. How do two become one? It's just not a natural, it's just not a normal thing, and it's not an easy thing that happens. And so he's going to talk about how two become one. Now, I think we think we have this figured out because of uh, when we think about dating and relationships, during that time, this seems to happen very easily, meaning that, that all of a sudden your life gets consumed by the other person. Anyone that's either dating or engaged or can think about that time in your life, I mean, you don't see anything else once you have locked in on that person that you're falling in love with. 
And you will do everything to pursue them. And you will forget about your time. You'll forget about your schedule. I mean, everything gets, gets thrown out the window. Your friends start wondering, do you even still know us, right? You're consumed by the other person. And your whole life is about them. And all of a sudden, it's just like, oh, we just are so in love. And it seems to come so easily. The rest of the world fades away. And we are just a couple. We are an item. We're going to get married. We are together. We are one. And it seems like it's the right thing. We're just smitten with each other. And we're willing to do whatever it takes. Guys will sit through movies like The Notebook, okay, and say, I love that movie. They'll watch figure skating and go, that is, hon, I love figure skating. I mean, especially the pairs dancing is so awesome. You can leave it on all afternoon as long as we're together, right? And then the wife said, oh, no, I, I love lacrosse. It's so much fun to watch lacrosse as long as we're together. And it just seems like we're becoming one. We're in this great relationship. And then marriage day is the climax. You get to the marriage day. Now it's like everything comes together. And now the rest of our lives are together. And the two of us are one. But then, right, the happily ever after starts, as we talked about before. The real marriage sets in. And all of a sudden, the daily grind and the things that happen day in and day out, all of a sudden don't seem so glamorous anymore. The dirty underwear that's hanging on the door handle doesn't magically walk into the laundry basket, right? Those things like that, they kind of start getting, getting a little bit more annoyed. The, the cooking that, that one or the other was willing to do in the beginning, I just love to cook for my man. I just love to cook for my wife. All of a sudden, it's starting to feel like a duty. It's starting to feel like a chore. It's starting to feel like, I don't know, the, the, the chemistry, the romance is gone behind preparing meals. The husband suddenly confesses he doesn't like figure skating. Don't you dare leave it on that station. The wife confesses she doesn't really think him ripping the big one is really that cute. <laughs> Especially under the covers. <laughs> I mean, the romance kind of goes away and, and all of a sudden it's not the two becoming one. And, and just sitting together, talking for hours, and just being together, all of a sudden is him on the, on the lazy boy with the remote and her on the couch and, you know, with the computer on and, and watching some mindless show and talking about bills and Dating? What's that all about? We get to see each other every day anyway. I mean, this is, is this the beauty of marriage that you set out for on the front end and that the two become one and see what we start seeing the ha- happen is kind of a scary thing because what's actually happening is the one are becoming two. And that's the subtle drift in marriage when the one start becoming two. But I have to ask the question, have the two ever really become one? Have the two ever really become one? And how does that happen? And we start seeing uh, in marriage when, when couples start saying things like, I don't really know who I am anymore. I'm not really sure. I feel like I'm losing myself in this. I feel like all I'm doing is running after the kids or, and, and I'm just everyone's servant or I'm just out there making the money and all I'm good for is paying the bills and keep whatever your situation is. And, and there's this idea of I want to get my life back. I've sacrificed long enough. I've sacrificed too hard. And, and all of a sudden there's, this, there's this, this drifting apart and the two slowly are becoming one. How does that happen? And how do we find our way back that the two would become one? Well, I want to talk about some marriage math. I know those two don't really go together, but I want to, I want to illustrate this here and through, through mathematics. So all you math geeks, you, you'll like this. And the rest of you, if you, can, if you can work with the numbers one and two, I think you'll, you'll understand this here. All right. So what we often think about is how two become one is you've got one guy and one woman and the two, and it equals two. No, we say the one plus one come together, and it equals one. How does that happen? Is that true? Does that, is this true in math? I don't know why I made different ones here. Some of you, that drives you crazy, so I'll do that. Is this true in math? 
But somehow we think in marriage, that's how it happens. One plus one equals two. No, one plus one, plus one does not equal one. One plus one always equals two. And I think if we approach marriage from the perspective of the two of us will just come together and magically we'll become one, well, it's not the truth. Many of us have gotten married and there's still two individuals, two separate identities, two separate people living t- together as two sharing a house. And basically that's when you have situations like you're more like roommates than soulmates. You're more just uh, kind of hanging out together. You become friends or you become partners in the business of your family. And it's, you, you are two. Well, so some might say, well, okay, let's look mathematically. How can two become one? And you might go like this. You say, well, one half plus one half equals one. Is that true in math? So is this true in marriage? Mm-hmm. Well, a little mixed question. You're not really sure. Well, this is, this is what is called in scientific circles as the Jerry Maguire principle. You guys remember the movie Jerry Maguire? You what me? You complete me. So what it's saying is, look, without you, I'm just half. And if, and if I find the other half, if I find the one that completes me, then we will make a whole. This is the furthest thing from biblical truth out there. Now, this isn't to say you can't compliment each other. There aren't things that you admire in one another. But what you're saying here is you're an incomplete individual without the other person. And that is so, again, unbiblical. Scripture talks about where we find our wholeness is in Christ. Our wholeness and our identity comes in Christ. And so many of us are looking for that person that's going to complete us, that's going to be our Savior, that's going to make us whole. And let me speak here to a moment to some of you teenagers or some of you who are in your 20s or whatever or are single, and you're out there saying, if I can just find the right person, then my life is going to be complete. And what you do is you either go from one boyfriend to the next boyfriend, and if you do not have a boyfriend or if you do not have a girlfriend, you feel incomplete. The problem isn't that you're not finding the right person, is that you have not found your wholeness with your Savior. You have not found your wholeness in your identity in Christ. And so this, if you bring this into marriage, or maybe you think, well, I'm three-quarter, I'm not that messed up, and she's got the the (laughs) one-quarter. That's a recipe for disaster. You've got two broken people, and of course we're all broken, but trying to find our wholeness in each other doesn't work. So how how does it work? Well... The only way that two ones that I know of in simple math, that they can become one, is in this formula. What does that equal? Some of you weren't sure. Come on, got to go back to school. One divided by one. Now, this isn't about marriage division that we're going to be talking about, creating division in marriage. But it's about one being absorbed into the other, one being submitted to the other, and the other into one, and the two become a new identity, which is the marriage bond. So now let's look at where we find this principle in Scripture. Let's get back to that Ephesians passage in Ephesians chapter 5, and I want to start at verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, on page 910. So let's begin here. And Paul, remember, is talking about how do we live as, as followers of Christ, and how do we change our behaviors, and how do we really live this out practically. And now he's turning his attention to, to marriage, to husbands and wives, and he says this, and further, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now there's a few things happening here. See, this is the idea of submission. Now, this, is a, this is a concept, and what we're going to talk about today is probably one of the furthest concepts that you will, you will not hear this in the public media. You will not see this displayed on TV and in movies. This is not what it talks about. What we hear about is this. Retain your individuality. 
Don't lose yourself in your marriage. Don't lose yourself too much to your husband or husband to your wife. And, and, and make sure you don't give up too much. If, if your husband's taking too much or your wife's taking too much, you better draw the battle lines. And what's happening is you're creating division in that very relationship and trying to retain that, that, that individuality. The idea here is submission. Submission is accepting or yielding to another person. We don't like this concept. Do you understand? This is not a fun concept. We don't like to submit to somebody. Because when you submit and voluntarily submit, you're saying, you know what? Not what I want, not my need, but your need first. What, you, what your will is, what you want to have happen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit to that. And so that's what submission really is. But here, what does it say? It says submit to whom? Well, first, yeah, first it says to each other. First it says submit to each other. So this isn't just the man submitting to the wife. This isn't just the wife submitting to the man, the husband and wife. It's submit to one another. Now, some of you might go, well, if you both submit to one another, nothing happens. No, no, no. We'll have dinner wherever you want. No, no, no. Wherever you want. No, no, you decide. No, you decide. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. I mean, this isn't that kind of <laughs> submission, okay? It, it, we're gonna, it goes a lot deeper than this, but it's submitting to one another. And, and the idea of of that is simply to say it goes both ways. But then it, it goes, and you were just talking about this here when I asked who do we submit to, out of reverence for Christ. Now what, what is out of reverence for Christ? What does that even mean? We read this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, reverence is when you stand in awe of God. When you're just, you know, you're just, you, you bow in honor before him and you're, you're submitted in, in respect. It's almost an act of bowing, this reverence. And what it's saying is, the reason you're going to submit to one another, and it's almost like a command here, you, you will submit to one another. I mean, if you're going to want to follow a godly marriage and a godly, godly example and where God can honor that marriage, you will submit. And you know why you're going to submit? Because your husband is awesome. Because your wife is awesome. Wait, oh, no, it didn't say that at all. It says you will submit out of reverence for Christ because you're going to honor God. You want to honor God with your life and because what he has done and as an act of worship, to Christ is the reason you're going to submit. Do you understand why this is a hard concept? Because if we don't have the reason out of reverence for Christ, we're not going to do it. Because we're human and we don't want to submit and we want our own will. But it's out of reverence for Christ. And so if you don't think faith matters in marriage, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. It plays a huge role in your relationship. If you don't understand how, what Christ did for you, and you don't have reverence or respect or honor or love for God, you're not going to be able to carry this concept through into your marriage because without the reverence for Christ, you're not going to get what the rest of this says, and you're going to take the rest of this passage completely out of context, and you're going to screw up your marriage. And so we have to understand the importance out of reverence for Christ, and that gives us the reason, the motivation, and the inspiration to do what we're called to do in marriage. Now, first we're going to look at wives submitting to husbands, and don't worry, wives, we're going to get to the husbands submitting to wives. So husbands, before you get too excited, your turn's coming second, okay? So we're going to, we're going to walk through um, the, these passages as they go here. Now, these next two verses have probably been taken out of context more by men and maybe have even been quoted as their favorite verses than maybe any other in the Bible because they've got biblical proof here for these next two, two verses to justify things that probably should never be justified. But here's what, here's what the verses are. Verse 22, you wives will submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of his body, the church. See there, hon? I'm the head of the wife. You will submit to me as you do to Christ. <laughs> uh, the louder you say amens, the louder you got to listen to the next part. <laughs> 
But see, this is what this is sometimes where we think this is the macho image. This is the this is where we're see this, the wife is supposed to submit to the husband. I'm the man. I'm in charge. My way or the highway, baby. I rule the roost, right? Do as I say. And we take these verses out of context and we think, is this what submitting to your husband means? And is this what's what, what's important here? Now, now you noticed I kind of left out a little section there that I think some men might kind of gloss over in verse 23 at the end of that. It doesn't just say um, husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the body of the church. Then there's a little colon there and it keeps going, semicolon. It says, he gave his life to be her savior. So we'll get to some of that here, but this is in context here of, of, of how we are to lead and what this leadership really looks like. So the, the, the analogy here all the time throughout this whole passage, even as we've read in the beginning, the mystery of two becoming one is like the relationship between Christ and the church. So this whole morning, we have to look at that relationship between Christ and the church to understand what is the relationship between husband and wife. And he constantly comes back and forth and draws this analogy. And so here it says, wives, submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. How does the church submit to Christ? Well, we follow Christ. We try our best to honor, honor his word. We try to honor his teachings. We try to correct our lives to follow what he has to say. Now, what, what does this mean for, for women? I mean, this is not a blanket statement for men. Do as I say. Because what we have to consider is what did Christ's word teach us? I mean, when the church follows Christ, what are we trying to follow? We're trying to follow Christ who had the church's best interest in mind. And the church meaning not just this institution. We are the church. I'm part of the church, the relationship between me and Christ. He has my best interest in mind and your best interest in mind. His words are life-giving. His words are hope-filled. His words are, are encouragement. His words are truth. And husbands, if we don't get this part and think it's just because the Bible says I'm in charge and we miss the fact of, wait a second, you're not doing things that are life-giving. Your words aren't helpful. They're not encouraging. They're not uplifting. They're not seeking the interest of the others. You're not fulfilling your part of the bargain. And here's the thing. In this whole analogy, if, if, if the comparison is, is, is Christ and husband and church and wife, you might go, well, that's kind of unfair. Why does the husband get to be compared to Christ? Actually, I would say I'd almost rather not be because it's a higher standard, isn't it? I mean, and, and I think if we forget what the standard is calling us to, we take this stuff and we abuse these verses. But I guarantee you, any wife in here, if you as a husband, if we as husbands would live up to the kind of standard that is set forth here, I think this mutual submission would be no problem. But I think it's the abuse of this that has gotten us off track. Now when, it, now, now, when it talks about, and then it keeps going here, it says, verse uh, 24, as the church submits to Christ, so you wives must submit to your husbands in everything. Whoa. Wow. What is, what is that all about? That seems, I mean, like, is this back from the 1942 Bible? I mean, is it, right? I mean, women's live. I mean, do you really submit to, to my husbands and everything? Remember, the, the man's part's coming still, don't, so don't worry about that. But see, what I think, what I think Paul is establishing here and he's talking about an order. And he's talking about an organization. And, and if you've ever been on a team, if you've ever been in business, if you've ever been anywhere, when you have two equally vested leaders, what happens? Where does the buck ultimately stop? Where, does, where are decisions finally made? There's an order that helps to create, create flow. There's an order that creates peace. And there's an order that helps in these things. But here's the thing. There's an order in leadership. Now, again, but what kind of leadership? This isn't the blanket statement, man, you have, you have blanket leadership. Your wife has to submit to you and everything. Wait a second. We're supposed to lead like Christ led. Well, how did Christ lead? 
He ruled with authority and an iron fist. He commanded and demanded his respect, and he, he, he just had his family you know, and his followers under his thumb. How did Jesus lead? He said, no, don't, the Bible says don't lord it over others. Jesus modeled by example. He invited people in. He led out of compassion. Last week, what we talked about is when he, when he met with his disciples at, the, at the, the Last Supper. Jesus, right, the leader of the world, of the universe, gets down on one knee and he grabs a, a, a basin of water and a towel. And what does he do? He washes his disciples' feet. This is the kind of leadership that's called for servant leadership. When a husband is called to lead, he's called to be a servant leader to his family, a servant to his wife, a servant to his kids, who says, I'm willing to lay my life down, and whatever we need to do as a family is to serve the interest of my wife, of my marriage, and of my kids. Now, that's the kind of leadership that I believe a wife is willing to submit to. Do I hear an amen from the women, or is this still not kind of sitting that well with you? See, this isn't, this isn't about, look, Whatever I say, you got to do. Uh-uh. This is not a blanket license for that. It's a high standard to follow what Christ said. Well, let's look at the, let's look at the husbands. You guys ready for that? <laughs> oh, here's are some moans. Okay. Verse, 20, verse 25. And you husbands must love your wives with the same love Christ showed the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by baptism in God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. So again, we're looking at this comparison, Christ and the church, husbands and wives. What, what, what's all this, what does all this mean? Christ gave up his life for his bride. Now some of you guys are going, yeah, when I got married, I gave up my life. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Check. Done that. <laughs> what else? This is not what it's talking about. Now, I mean, some of you husbands might be thinking, yeah, I mean, if, if somebody came to our house with a gun, they're about to shoot my wife, I'd jump and I'd take a bullet for her. Bravo, you're a man. That's not just your role as a husband. That's a, dude, just, that, that's a great thing. We all ought to do that. And this isn't just about our physical lives, although that's a great thing to do and to think about protecting our family. But giving up our life wasn't just our single life. It's giving up our lives today. And this is something we're going to get back to because that's a huge part of this two becoming one. But he gave up his life for her. And in giving up his life, he made her holy and clean. Right? When Jesus said he made the church holy and clean. Now, if you look at the church, and the church is you and me, is the church holy and clean, like, from our perspective? Is it? Well, from a human perspective. If I look around at the church, and I'm the church, holy and clean, I'm going, oh, there's adultery happening, there's theft happening, there's lying happening, there's stealing happening, there's sin going on. There's, you go down the list and you kind of go, this is not, the body of Christ, as we see it from human eyes, is not the prettiest picture in the world. We're, we're people that, are, that have fault, that have, have, have struggles, and yet by what Christ did, he sees the church as pure and spotless, clean and holy without wrinkle, it says in here. He has a way of looking at his bride. The church is often called the bride of Christ. He's able to look at her and just see the beauty, not the ugliness, not the sin, because he paid the price for her. Now, now a husband is not called to be the savior of his wife. Remember, we talked about that. Christ is the savior. But if I were to apply some of these principles here, I would say, when you think about husbands, when you think about your wife's past, when you think about or you, her present, you think about the, the, the struggle or you think about sin or you think about issues of either self-respect or just regrets and things of that nature. 
A husband laying down his life says, I take all of that, and I don't see it anymore, and I lay down my life, and we're going to start new together, fresh and clean. I don't bring those things up. They are gone. We have a new life and a new entity. It's not you and me. It's us now. And we are a new body. We are one, and we start from this point. And it basically creates this new relationship. And I think it's just so beautiful when he says that Christ and the church became set apart. Remember, you guys know set apart. I mean, holy means to be set apart. And what happens when we get married, and, and, and let's say from the, the, the bride's perspective and the husband's perspective, it says they leave their families of origin, father and mother, they're set apart, and now they become one. And, and in many cases, the wife takes on the, you know, the, the, a new last name, and there's a set apartness. Now, we are a new family. We are a new nucleus that begins here. And life is given through that. And I think, husbands, we, when we respect our wives and we lay down our lives we begin to see her through a different lens and she becomes even more beautiful. It's like giving us rose-colored lenses without wrinkle, without fault, without blame. But it has to come also when we lay down our life. And what does that mean? Lay down your life. There's so many different ways that we can lay down our lives. It's our time, our schedules. And again, this comes both ways. What are we willing to sacrifice for the good of our family? And so as we look at these, these relationships between Christ and the church and husband and wife, what I think is that the marriage, that marriage is the one place that I think God designed for us to first and foremost experience the love of God. And if you really think about that, to be the tangible love of God, when he's saying it's just like Christ in the church, that's how you ought to be to each other, husband and wife, wife and husband, and that kind of mutual submission that you're honoring each other, you're loving each other, you're caring for the needs of the other, you're willing to lay down your life. And in that, doing that, we begin to understand our relationship with God in a new way. And two, mar- and two people submitted in that way in marriage. Now let me go a little bit further in this analogy of uh, Christ and the church. Last Sunday, uh, if, if you were here for Easter, we talked about raising our white flag and surrender, right? We talked about laying down, uh, voluntarily submitting and surrendering our lives to Christ. And there's a verse we looked at, and it's in Luke, a couple of verses in Luke chapter 9. And I want to bring them to bear here. And maybe you've never heard them connected to marriage, but I think with what Paul is saying, we can absolutely connect these to marriage. It's Luke chapter 9, page 792. Luke chapter 9, verse uh, 23. If we want to know how to be one in marriage, it's the same principle as how we become one with Christ. Again, this, our faith has everything to do with this. How do we become one with Christ? Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find true life. And how do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose or forfeit your own soul in the process? Jesus is saying you want to have a new life, meaning you've got to put your old life, Mark Krenz, you must die in the way that you were. And if you want to be a follower of Christ, you've got to put that life to death by submitting to me, set your selfish ambitions aside, and then when you take up your cross daily and follow me, you're going to discover what it means to have a spiritual rebirth, a new life in your soul and in the way that you approach life. That's a new beginning, and now the Bible says you are a new person in Christ when you submit your life and follow Christ in that way. Well, here's the, what happens in marriage. It's the same parallel. When, when we get married, we put our old life aside. If we continue to try to live, if I continue to try to live like single Mark Krenz and single Shannon Brewer, 
And we try to just be married, but constantly trying to think about that marriage is just taking from me. It's taking my life away. It's robbing me of the things I used to do. It's robbing me of my independence. We get this negative view that, that marriage is really just taking our life away. And many people say, I'm taking my life back. I've sacrificed enough. I've done enough for the family. This is my time. This is me now. And, the, and, and what that happens is we're pulling apart. But if we want to experience a new reality, we have to say that old life is gone. If I want to embrace the completeness and fullness of what marriage can be, I need to embrace a new reality, and I have to put the old one down. So let's look at these verses in the context of marriage. If any of you wants to be one, wants to be married, right, wants to be as one, you must set aside your selfish ambitions. What, is that? what are your selfish ambitions, your dreams, your goals, your hopes? And some of you are saying, well, I wanted them fulfilled in marriage. I don't want to have to set them all aside. You still have some of those things, but you know what? It's now submitted in marriage to say, what are our new dreams and our new goals together? And how do these things fit in? And some of those things may need to be left aside, but there is now a new reality that is birthed when two become one in a marriage, submitting to a new reality that is the oneness of marriage. And you must set aside your selfish ambitions. But I want to hang out with the guys. I want to hang out with the girls. But my schedule wants this. I want to spend money this way. It's a submitting to one another. So you must, you must set aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross daily. What does that mean? Daily laying down your life. Jesus on the cross, that's death. Every day you lay down your life for your spouse. Every morning you say, this is our day, this is our family, this is our marriage, and you lay it down. And then it says, and follow me, and I think in marriage that means, and let's walk this path together. Let's set aside our selfish ambitions, let's submit our lives to one another, and now let's walk this journey together. And then I love, I mean, just keep going with it. It applies. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you'll lose it. If you're married and you try to keep your life for yourself, you're going to lose your marriage. And you're going to lose your own life. You're going to lose both. And that's what's happening over and over and over again in our society. It's people trying to hold on to their lives. And what happens is their marriage come, falls apart in the pursuit of not wanting to lose what's, what, what they think is rightfully their own, their own life. But if you give up your life for your marriage, you will find true marriage. I mean, that's the, tr that's the secret. And it comes from our understanding, our relationship with Christ. Is when I say I'm giving up my life, but I'm gaining so much more because it's a new reality in marriage, that's when two start becoming one, when, it, when we live it out in that way. And even the last verse here. And how do you benefit if you gain the whole world? What, if you, what do you benefit if you gain that promotion? What do you benefit if you spend all those hours at work? What do you benefit if you have all that party time with your girlfriends? What do you, what do you benefit if you, if you just are about your own fitness? Or, I don't know, will you insert. What do you benefit if you're stuck in your own addiction? What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose or forfeit your own marriage in the process? I mean, what are you sacrificing? You're going to sacrifice one thing, your life or your marriage. But if you want true marriage, it's about laying down your life this is this is hard to accept and this is a tough reality but i believe this is the secret in the two becoming one everything is second to your marriage first to christ and then your marriage your kids come after your marriage your job comes after your marriage your schedule comes after your marriage your finances come after your marriage because what's happening is there's a new reality, which is the marriage. Now, the passage in Ephesians goes on, and it says this. And again, if you read this through kind of a male chauvinistic kind of thing, you, you miss the point. 
and we'll try to explain this here. It says in verse 20, 28, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For man is actually loving himself when he loves his wife. No one hates his own body, but lovingly cares for it, just as Christ cares for his body, which is the church. And we are his body. What it's saying here is this isn't about, husband, love your wife, because you're really just loving yourself. So, I mean, it's like the selfish motive. No, what it's saying is, you are now one body. You're not a separate, your wife is not a separate entity. And from a wife's perspective, your husband is not a separate person. That is you. I mean, if we are really one, that is one so that when I do something to harm me, when I'm struggling through an addiction, when I'm doing damaging things to my own life, I am harming my wife. I'm harming my marriage because we are one entity. When I do things to, to love her and to care for her, it's really like we're caring for ourselves because we're growing our marriage. We're growing our relationship. And so if we want to truly become one, we have to see ourselves as a new entity fully submitted to one another. Let the old life go. Put aside your selfish ambition and begin to walk together. And the question for you simply today is, what do you need to submit? To submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not because your husband or your spouse deserves it, but, but, but I'd do it if it came both ways. You know, if, if, if my husband were like that, I'd submit. If my wife were like that, I'd submit. No, out of reverence for Christ, you begin to walk the route and the journey that God has called us to. There's a book um, that was written called The Love Dare. I don't know if you guys have heard about that. But it talks about, and maybe if you're in a situation where your husband is completely checking out or does not have anything to do with this, or maybe it's the, the other way around, it's your wife, the love there is simply an approach that says you're going to do things for, I don't know how many ever days it was, or 30, 40 days, where you're just going to do the things that love does, whether or not your husband or your wife deserves it. That's an act of submission. And you watch what begins to happen when you live out this principle, even if it's not coming both ways, because you're not doing it for them, you're doing it out of reverence for Christ. And uh, I'm just asking you, where do you need to submit? Husbands, where do you need to lay down your life this week in a great act of love? What do you need to say? I'm giving up the dream of the bass boat. I'm not, I'm coming home early from work. I'm going to go on a date today. I'm going to put this time with my buddies aside, this thing that's taking this hobby that's consuming my entire life. I'm going to get out of the garage or I'm going to get out of that game or I'm going to, whatever. How do you need to lay down some of your interests in honor of your wife? And wives, how can you do the same? Or how can you show respect and honor to your husband as this passage also talks about? Instead of belittling, or you're not doing enough, or what kind of husband are you? What if you begin to show respect and honor and watch your husband respond to that kind of submission and that kind of honor? It's a beautiful picture of what can happen. And then we come back to the end. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife, as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And it's, a, it's a picture of what can happen when two people mutually submitted to one another. Let's pray. I think some of you need to focus specifically on your marriage right now in prayer. And uh, in a few moments when we close with a few couple songs of worship, we're going to have a time of prayer too. And you can, maybe I just encourage you as couples to walk together and have a time of prayer. Or if you're here by yourself or just take that time to pray and ask where you need to submit or maybe where you've tried to take too much of your own life back and need to pour back into your marriage. But I also believe you today, some of you need to get your faith right with God. Because without your spirit submitted to Christ, you're not going to be able to do this. And this is about the ultimate submitting to Christ. Um, 
by laying down our lives and giving them to him. And maybe you take a time to pray and just express that desire to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know we have a lot of married couples here this morning. We have singles here this morning. We have youth here this morning and kids. And God, I just pray that you would help this message to speak to each of us wherever we are at. For the couples this morning that are hurting, that are struggling, I'm bringing your spirit in a powerful way to breathe new life and hope. Help us to submit, especially when it's very difficult. It's not an easy thing out of reverence for you. Father, those here today that do not have a relationship with you, may that be the first priority today. To get that right, to begin to surrender their lives to you and to gain true life. We love you, Jesus. Amen.